Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. Time flies when you're learning super cool stuff. I'm Nate. And I'm Callie. If you're dropping in for the first time, welcome to Curiosity, where we aim to blow your mind by helping you to grow your mind. If you're a loyal listener, welcome back. Today, you'll learn about the real science behind the five-second rule and why you may want to reconsider eating that candy off the ground. Why researchers are looking to our furry friends to build better early warning systems for natural disasters and why the first animal to ever fly had a real issue keeping its lunch down. Without further ado, let's satisfy some curiosity. Do you follow the five-second rule, Nate? Drop food on the floor and you have five seconds to pick it up, otherwise you can't eat it? Of course. I draw the line at soup, though. Any sloppy foods, really. Stews, yogurt, Joes. But if I drop a Pringle, that is going right into my face hole, no questions asked. Oh, me too. Uh, Did you know research found women are actually more likely to eat food off the floor than men are? That's interesting. You know, for someone who loves science, I've really enjoyed living in ignorance of the data behind this rule. Your vacation from information is over, Nate. Researchers dove in, and when it comes to the five-second rule, what you drop and where you drop it makes a big difference on what takes a free ride on your midnight snack. I'm afraid I'm about to realize ignorance was bliss. Five seconds may seem like a lot, but the rule's origins go back more than 800 years. In the 13th century, in the Mongol courts of Genghis Khan, the Khan rule meant you could eat any food off the floor, regardless of how long it had been there. In fairness, they didn't know much about bacteria and germs back then. True. The thought was, if food was good enough for the most powerful man in the world, a little thing like the floor wasn't going to ruin it. I imagine anybody who refused found themselves in the crosshairs of the Khan. Ah, is my trash not good enough for you? Eat my trash! We're so lucky you're passionate about sharing science and not conquering the world. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Chef Julia Child was also known to not worry about food landing in precarious locations. In one episode of her show, The French Chef, a potato pancake flies out of the pan and hits the stovetop. So she just tosses it back in and says, You can always pick it up if you're alone in the kitchen. Who's going to see? Well, that's the child rule. If something in the kitchen is good enough for the French chef herself, it's good enough for me. Well, it wasn't good enough for scientists. In 2016, researchers at Rutgers University published a five-second rule study in the journal Applied and Environmental Microbiology. They tested 128 different scenarios and took 2,500 measurements across various floors, including stainless steel, ceramic tile, wood, and even carpeting. If I drop a lollipop on a carpet, I guarantee you, no matter how briefly it touched those fibers, there's no chance I'm putting it back in my mouth. I'm totally with you. They didn't try suckers, but scientists tried plain white bread, buttered white bread, a watermelon, and gummy worms. They dropped each from a height of five inches. So what did we learn? Can the con rule be the Nate rule? (laughs) The biggest finding? We've been asking the wrong question the whole time. It's not how long your food is on the ground, it's what kind of food it is. Bacteria and microorganisms stick to your food when they are attracted to its different properties, including fat content and moisture. In fact, scientists found that wetness was actually a more important factor than time. So I was right about that lollipop. Well, certainly. Wet foods like watermelon pick up way more microorganisms than dry foods like gummy worms. And the floor itself is wet? Steer clear. Dry foods, dry floors. Got it. My Pringles are safe. Uh, no, not quite. Sure, the longer the food is on the ground, the more contaminants transfer to the food, but it's kind of like spritzing a pool with a garden hose. It won't make much of a difference. Scientists found that regardless of food or floor, once it hit the ground, microorganisms were all over it in almost an instant. The five-second rule is really like a half-second rule. Callie, please don't take this from me. My reflexes, they just aren't that good. And the CDC says 12% of foodborne illnesses comes from surface contamination. It doesn't mean every time you eat something off the ground you'll get sick, but you sure aren't helping your odds. Pringles have never hurt me, Callie. They never would. I'm sorry, Nate. It's not personal. 
It's science. But before we go, I'll give you a fun, strange fact. Anything to help me get over this loss. I'm going to have to be a much more careful snacker. Oh, you weren't entirely right about that sucker. Scientists found carpet actually transferred the fewest microorganisms to your food. If my worst case scenario is actually the best case scenario, I'm over the five second rule. What's next? You're going to tell me that knocking on wood doesn't fend off bad luck? I'll leave you to your blissful ignorance on that one. Natural disasters can come out of nowhere. Things like earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, tornadoes. Me forgetting my mom's birthday. Callie, that one has a pretty predictable pattern. It's once a year on the same day. You have the resources. Just use the, you know what, you're on your own. My poor mom. Scientists are, however, working on improving the early detection of the rest of those natural disasters. And to do that, they're looking in a pretty unconventional direction. Tarot cards! No, Callie, the world's scientists are not choosing to rely on tarot cards to predict natural disasters. They're looking toward a more natural solution. Ah, palm reading. No, close though. They're talking to ghosts. Really? No, they're not talking to ghosts. Dang it. They're looking to animals to show them the way. Oh, sure. Talking to animals is way less weird than anything I said. Well, not talking to them, observing them. We know that animals often exhibit unusual behavior before natural disasters. Records of it date back to 373 BC, when several types of animals were reported fleeing the city of Helica days before an earthquake and the resulting tsunami. But it's not something that's often been documented scientifically. And sometimes, even then, it's not the main focus of the study. But in 2014, scientists were tracking golden-winged warblers in East Tennessee, and something very strange happened. The birds were chilling in their breeding ground, gearing up for, you know, making boom-boom. And then all of a sudden, they flew hundreds of miles away. And what happened the day after they left? That region of Tennessee was hit by over 80 tornadoes. 80? 80. It was terrible. 35 people were killed, and the damage totaled over a billion dollars. That's just awful. Man, if they knew that the birds were taking off early because something was coming, they might have been able to warn people. Absolutely. But we actually don't have super strong scientific evidence yet that the behavior and the natural disasters are even correlated, even though the anecdotal evidence is strong. So the next step is developing more studies directed at that question. We need to observe animals in their natural behavioral patterns long enough to be sure that the change in the pattern is a reliable data point. I already follow like 30 different animal Instagram accounts that just kind of show me animals doing human stuff, like, you know, skateboarding, playing drums. I could follow more. We all could, Callie. But scientific studies are what's needed. And they're beginning to happen. One study in 2017 recorded the movement of farm animals in an earthquake-prone region of Italy. Tracking animals like this is called biologging. Chipped collars periodically sent movement data to the scientists every few minutes for eight months. Sure enough, the animal's behavior began to change a whole 20 hours before one particularly strong earthquake. Using this data, they were able to accurately predict seven out of eight bigger earthquakes to come. That's pretty good. Yeah, for sure. Promising stuff. Countless lives could be saved if we can understand this even better and warn people before quakes hit. So once we've confirmed that certain animals change their behavior before natural disasters, we can get to studying exactly why they do it. Right, because we don't really know yet. Animals have so many evolutionary gifts. Some can sense shifts in the atmosphere. They often have amazing hearing and sense of smell. Smell is a famously difficult sense to replicate with technology. Some people are trying to add a smell tech to the metaverse as we speak. I don't think I want to know what Facebook smells like. Same here. 
Right now, there's focus on something called infrasound, which is similar to the concept of infrared light. Basically, it's sound at such a low frequency that humans can't hear it. However, plenty of animals can. Animals also have a lot of iron in their system, so they could be feeling electromagnetic changes. Oh, like how birds use the Earth's magnetic field to help migration. Exactly, though we don't know if that's what they're feeling when the natural disasters are coming. What we do know is that they feel something, and they hoof it on out of there. So what's our plan? I'd say we'd find out what they're sensing, then maybe develop methods to detect it ourselves. Leave the animals to just being cute on Instagram. That's certainly my hope, and it seems there's hope to be had here. Similar to the study about the warblers where they predicted the tornado swarm, a zoologist noticed toads in the Peruvian Andes kind of disappearing days before a massive 7.0 earthquake. But what's interesting about it is that in her paper, the zoologist notes that the event coincided with recorded changes in the ionosphere, a layer of charged particles about 30 miles off the Earth's surface. Okay, so maybe we should just study the ionosphere? Or infrasound? Or toads? Jeez, I don't know. I just want people to be safe, Nate. Of course. That's all any of the scientists want, and it's all being considered. I find it sad that even though humans are technically animals, we can't detect these things ourselves. Not yet, at least. Speak for yourself. I can detect when I'm going to miss my mom's birthday by like three days. Callie, you are in complete control of the situation. Will you please do something about that? I'd love to. The science just isn't there yet. Nate, if I puked right now, do you think you could see what I had for breakfast? I think you'd end up seeing what I had for breakfast. (laughs) Today, I want to tell you about prehistoric puke. Callie, we've talked about a lot of things, but dinosaur puke? Okay, well, listen, it's not quite puke and not technically dinosaurs. Scientists recently found fossilized pellets from flying-winged reptiles called pterosaurs. These pellets not only tell us how they ate, but what they ate. They actually found two pterosaur fossils in northeast China, a youngster and an adult, and were able to confirm that regurgitation was crucial for their digestion. But what exactly are these puking flying things if they're not dinosaurs? Pterosaurs are relatives on a supremely close branch of the reptile family tree to dinosaurs. After insects, they were the first animals to fly. And forget measly eagles, these things could grow to the size of fighter jets. Imagine being puked on by a jet. No, thank you. Uh, Anyway, all around the fossils, scientists also found these fossilized pellets. Okay, but how do we know these were pellets and not just pterosaur doo-doo? The pellets were outside the bodies. And this is important. The largest pellets were wider than both of the pterosaurs' pelvises. Oh, so that means it couldn't have passed through them. It had to... Exit the way it entered. How do you make a pellet? Could I make one if I tried really hard? Not quite. You need two things. The ability to do antiperistalsis, which is when your intestines squeeze to push its contents up and out. And you need a two-part stomach. These pellets mean it's likely that pterosaurs had both. Was one part the stomach for dinner and one for dessert? That would explain how there is always room for dessert. (laughs) One part secreted acid to dissolve the food. The other kind of acts like a trash compactor, squeezing all the indigestible bits together. After this, the mass exodus would happen. But why would they eat something they can't digest? Because that's all they could do. Remember that grade school experiment where we dissected owl pellets? It's kind of like that. Like owls, pterosaurs didn't have teeth to chew or pick at food. So they swallowed things whole and ditched the parts they couldn't digest. Well, if these pellets were also fossilized and they have parts of the animal that the pterosaurs couldn't digest, can we tell what they were eating? Yes, and not only that, they found both a juvenile and an adult, so we can compare what they ate over a lifetime. Turns out they ate the same thing, whether they were child or fully grown. What was the daily special? T-Rex steaks? Tricera pops? 
Not quite. We know they had a fish-heavy diet because the pellets were packed with fish scales. Do you think the fish is still good? Is it, like, past its expiration date? Since pterosaurs lived in the late Jurassic period, 199 to 146 million years ago, it's a safe bet to say that fish is turned. That would be one funky-smelling tuna sandwich. Now you're going to make me puke. But the coolest thing is the fish in the pellets were much larger than most of the other fish fossils at the site. So were they winning big bass competitions? It means they likely weren't just grabbing the first fish they saw. They were probably hunters pursuing individual and particularly tasty-looking prey. And we can tell all of that from a couple upchucks from millions of years ago. Science is awesome. Isn't it? Let's go get lunch. I'm starving. I'm thinking tuna fish. No. Let's recap what we learned today to wrap up. Scientists have put the five-second rule to the test, and it might make you rethink what you put in your mouth. Factors like what you drop and where you drop it might just be more important than how long it takes you to pick it back up. A growing area of study may help with early detection of natural disasters. Scientists are looking to animals, first to confirm evidence that they flee before disaster strikes, and then to figure out how they know what's to come. If successful, new early warning systems can be built on the research, and countless lives will be saved. The latest clue to prehistoric digestion lies in an unlikely place, ancient puke. Pellets from a flying reptile called pterosaurs are not only telling us how the massive creatures ate, but what exactly they were snacking on. Curiosity Daily is produced by Wheelhouse DNA for Discovery. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we would love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. 